Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, today to the book of Matthew, chapter 8. Book of Matthew, chapter 8. We are continuing in this wonderful gospel, and if you remember the theme uh, from last week's text at the end of Matthew, chapter 7, we began to see a theme in Matthew's account of Christ, this theme of authority. Christ's authority has now been established. And after the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not their scribes. And so as we transition into chapter 8, as Jesus is now beginning his He's continuing his ministry, but now Matthew is showing us that Jesus is beginning his ministry in earnest with the people. And we begin to see things of miracles and of wonders and signs, all pointing to his authority and his divinity. Amen. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping this morning. We, we, we thank you for this gift you've given us of community and connection with one another through the blood of your Son. And through your word, Lord, we now pause and listen to you speak. The truths of your gospel through your Son, Jesus Christ, is a truth that is beyond our frail comprehension. And even when we read these narratives of your Son, Jesus Christ, granting favor to a Gentile, who claimed that he, would, he himself was unworthy. Lord, there is so much there that you need us to see, you want us to understand. And Lord, I pray at this time, you would cause our hearts to be opened, to hear the truth of your word. Deal with us where we are, Father, we ask. In your mercy and your grace, Lord, we need you. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. God bless you. It is not uncommon for us to see people as part of a class structure. In our modern times, we have looked upon the world, and in our human wisdom, we have classified people 
in class and race. You realize that the understanding of race is a concept that only came about in the modern period. Around 1758 was the first time some academic somewhere decided we're going to classify human beings based on race. I just want to let that lay for a minute. That is not something that was originally part of God's design, not even originally in human thinking until much, much later. Lay, I mean, until the modern period arrived, we didn't have this. I mean, there was clearly differences between human beings. You know, people had different languages. People had different nationalities. People had different ethnicities. But the concept of race, as we see it today, where some are superior and some are inferior, that is an idea that is not of God. It is an idea that sinful human beings have created, really, after the modern period, this area called the Enlightenment where we suddenly embrace our wisdom and we have all answers to all that there is in the world. Humanity decided we knew the answers and God was not necessary. That's a, that's a construct of the modern period. We can easily fall into this idea that people belong in certain groups. There's a place where they belong, there's a place where we put them, and there's a place where we belong and a place where we put ourselves. This is a place of our own making. Some people belong to our group, some people do not. This is a concept, a mindset, that if we're not careful, we can fall into this and judge others based on who they, who we perceive they are. Why do I bring this up? Because one, it's, it's a very relevant to this text with the Roman centurion coming to Jesus. We're going to see here the understanding of the day that the Gentiles had no place at the table. The Gentiles were seen by the Jews as other, inherently sinful with no hope of redemption because of who they were, a class that they were placed in. Another reason why I want to bring this up, and this is a sidetrack, and I don't want this to be the main focus of the sermon, but it's it's necessary to say it today of all days, because if you are watching what is happening in our United States Congress, there is this horrible legislation called the Equality Act that when you look at this thing, it is destructive, it is horrible, it is dangerous, and the very idea that they're trying to impose equality, when you look at it, they're actually dividing and placing people into categories. Further in Christian circles right now, and this ties directly to the uh, philosophy behind the Equality Act, is this idea of critical race theory. If you're not familiar with that, it's not the focus of our sermon today, but it is a dangerous idea in the church that is taking root in some places, but there are many people who are seeing the true harm of critical race theory that we interpret Scripture based on race and racial experiences. And it is a new way of interpreting scripture that is dangerous and heretical and not of God. That's enough about that. But it will relate to what we're seeing here today. Amen. The Old Testament Mosaic law made a clear distinction between God's people, the Jews, and those who were there on the outside, the Gentiles. That was part of the Mosaic law. The relationship between Jew and Gentile was sensitive and at times very volatile. Okay? The standard Jewish response was that Gentiles were inherently sinners outside of God's favor because the Jews are God's chosen people. God calls them. He made them his own people, and God did this. 
And in the Mosaic law, those outside of the nation of Israel are Gentiles and they are unclean. They are inherently sinful. So this scene in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 8 continues with the idea of Gentiles in their place and Jews in their place. However, Jesus responds to the request of this Roman centurion in a way that goes counter to the Jewish understanding of the day. And what he's going to reveal here is that all are welcome into the kingdom of heaven who are repentant and humble, especially even the Gentiles. Jesus responds to the request of this Roman centurion, and and it shows a uniquely different reception of the Gentile into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is... In, in one hand, he, he's he's uh, he's he's uh, respecting the traditions of the Jewish culture, but then he's also breaking it apart, showing this is not what the kingdom of heaven is about. Let me show you who is welcome in the kingdom. The true child of God, the true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, is one who has a genuine and faithful heart, not a birthright. That's what Jesus is showing us here in this text. Before we can discern the meaning of this scene here, of this centurion coming to Jesus, I think we need, again, a greater understanding of the position that Jesus' ministry took toward evangelizing the Gentiles particularly. For Jesus, God's vengeance against sin is on the sinners for their sin, not on the Gentiles because they were Gentiles. Let me make that very clear. This is what Jesus is showing because the traditional Jewish understanding was the very nature of being a Gentile means that you were inherently sinful and God's wrath was against the Gentiles for that purpose. In other words, God's wrath was against the Gentiles because they were Gentiles. And Jesus is breaking this mold here. He says, no, God's vengeance is on the sinners for their sin, not because they are Gentiles. His message was one of mercy and it was of grace, especially to this Gentile soldier. And it stood in contrast with the expectations of the Jewish religious elite. Okay. So Jesus makes it clear that his ministry was first to the lost sheep of Israel. Here's kind of the irony we have to look at here. When we look at what Jesus is doing in his ministry in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and begs him to heal her daughter from demon possession. And Jesus's response to her initially was, I am only here to the lost sheep of Israel. But her persistence showed in that encounter and God honored her persistence. When we examine Jesus' ministry overall, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that he did not generally go out of his way to find Gentiles. That doesn't mean he avoided Gentiles. But when we look in the Gospels account, Jesus does not primarily make an effort to always go to the Gentiles. This is not easy to say that Jesus never approached the Gentiles. I mean, Jesus does approach the Gentiles, but that he, he mostly and primarily focused on the Jewish people first. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. If you drop down, we'll look at that here in another couple of weeks. There are demon-possessed Gadarenes who met Jesus as he stepped onto the shore. Mark chapter 5 has the same account. It's as if these, I mean, they were demon-possessed. They came out of the tombs toward Jesus. Matthew chapter 15 
Um, and then actually in Luke chapter 7, same story, this Canaanite or, or the Syrophoenician woman, she came and fell at Jesus' feet, begging for Jesus to cast out the demon. And Jesus' response to her, again, like I said, the lost sheep of Israel. Notice that it wasn't Jesus who sought out this woman, the woman sought her out. In John chapter 12, we have an account where the Greeks, there were a group of Greeks at the temple as Jesus was at the temple, and they send word through his disciples, we want to talk to Jesus. So again, we see there the Greeks, the Gentiles, were trying to approach Jesus. And, my, and then here we see in the Roman centurion account, then when we look here, the, that the Roman centurion came forward to Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus was seeking this man out, Particularly, it's that the, that the Gentile was coming to Jesus. These are simply a few examples in the Gospels of how the Gentiles generally approached Jesus and that Jesus rarely, he, he just did not genuinely initiate contact with the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't mean he, did, he had no contact. He had plenty of contact. It was that when you read the Gospels, you don't see Jesus initiating it because that was not his ministry primarily. That would come later. Yet we do see Jesus, I mean, he intentionally does approach the Samaritan woman at the well. We do see this in John chapter 4. Jesus initiates the conversation with this woman. But this woman who comes to the well in John chapter 4, she's coming to the well to get water, her daily dose, her daily supply of water. She's not initially coming to Christ. It's a surprise meeting for her. And you could clearly see in the text that Jesus, in his divine appointment, caused, he was there for this moment. But we do see some interactions like that. So we see in the Gospels that Jesus' ministry was, his general approach was, uh, was among the Gentiles was not initiated by him as a rule, but we see several exemptions. There are times where uh, there are exemptions to this. From time to time, exceptional Gentiles are mentioned in the Gospels, and this Roman centurion is one. Exceptional Gentiles were not excluded from this Gospel message of salvation. These exceptional Gentiles showed a a level of humility, a level of faith that the traditional Jewish person just generally did not. That's what made these Gentiles exceptional. In Matthew chapter 8, we see the humility of this Roman centurion. Let's take a look here at what he has to say. Notice as Jesus is moving, remember he's coming down off of the mountain after his uh, sermon, and he's cleansed the leper, and then he comes to Capernaum. Capernaum, we know in the Gospels, uh, becomes Jesus' home base of operation. Where was Jesus' hometown? Nazareth. Well, he was born in Bethlehem. But eventually his family settled back in Nazareth, which was their home, and that's where he was generally raised. But we see in his adult ministry life that Capernaum becomes this center of operation. So he comes to Capernaum, and when he comes into Capernaum, a centurion comes forward to him, appealing to him. Look in verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. This pagan Roman occupier comes to Jesus because there's a need. You see that? The centurion, as he's coming to Christ, Jesus responds pretty quickly in verse 7, I will come and heal him. No hesitation. We don't see that. Jesus is not hesitating responding to the Gentile. But we do see that the Gentile, Roman, he, he initiates, he comes to Christ. 
But look here in verse, verses 7 and 8. When Jesus replies to the centurion's request, he says, I will come and heal him. Look at how the response... First of all, it's interesting. The centurion initiates the request, and Jesus answers in the positive, in the affirmative. But look, then look at how the centurion responds to the acknowledgement. <laughs> the centurion says, no, I'm unworthy. You see that? No, I am unworthy. Why is this the case here in verse 8? The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. I think that right there is a clear reflection that this Roman centurion understood the cultural norms of the day. The Gentiles were not worthy of the Jewish attention. And he acknowledged, this is a Roman occupier acknowledging the status quo. But he also says that he, he, I think he also recognizes his own sinfulness. When he says, I am not worthy in relation to the holiness of Christ, this Roman centurion is acknowledging his own unworthiness as a sinner. Amen. Now look here at verse 9. As we continue on here, the, 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 the centurion continues in his explanation. Now look at verse 9. For the reason he's unworthy He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This Roman centurion understood, he acknowledges his own military authority, both that there was authority over him and that he had authority over others. So the Roman centurion understood this concept of authority. And he the same idea, he acknowledges upon Christ, his authority levels higher and lower, the centurion's response of, I am not worthy, I think also points to he understood where he was, that Jesus had higher authority than even he did. He understood his place in the authority structure. Christ, Jesus, you have more authority than me. I am unworthy. Imagine a Roman centurion with this humility, an occupier, a military occupier, understands his frailty, his sinfulness. I am not worthy of your presence, Christ. You see that? Now, I think we can see a little bit more in this account. If we flip over to Luke's account of this, Luke chapter 7, we're not going to read it all, but if you're taking notes... Uh, I think that would be good for you to read through some of the details of Luke's account. You give, again, I love comparing stories in the Gospels because Luke's account always tends to give us a little bit more detail. Let's look here um, in verses... Um, let's begin in verse uh, 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. See, this is a little bit of a different account, a little bit more detail. In this detail, it's not the centurion himself coming to Christ. It's like he sends an entourage. He hears that Christ has arrived in, in, in uh, Capernaum, and he sends, who does he send? He sends the elders of the Jews. Go to this, go to this prophet, this, this healer. Tell him, I have a need. You see that? Now look here in verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, 
Speaking about the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is one who built us our synagogue. You see that little detail? The Roman centurion who is occupying this town had respect for the Jewish religion, had respect for the culture, so much so that he paid for and built a synagogue for the people. You notice that little detail? A Gentile does this. So what we see here is this centurion is well-loved in Capernaum. The people love him. He has a great reputation, a leader of men. This foreign occupier has come to to this land, and he loves the nation that he's occupying, and he loves their religion. (laughs) He may have even learned to love God in the process. It's very common in the New Testament to, to read about Gentiles who were lovers of God. They were outside of the Jewish tradition, but they were Gentile, but they had respect for and a genuine admiration and adoration of God. The Roman centurion seems to be one of these Gentiles. So notice the contrast here, especially in Luke's account. Notice the contrast between the Jewish understanding of favor. What do they say here in verses 4 and 5? They tell Jesus, this centurion is worthy to have you do this, because he loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. So in other words, what the Jewish leaders were doing, they come to Jesus and they say, this Roman centurion has a request. He has a servant who is near death. You need to take care of him because he likes us and look what he's done for us. You notice their approach? <laughs> you notice that that's a detail that Matthew doesn't give us, but I think is very funny. The Jewish leaders come to Jesus with works, righteousness, and merit. He's just a Gentile, but he's a good Gentile because look what he's done for our people. So Jesus, take care of him. In other words, you see how they word it? You need to do this for him, Jesus. You see that? You see that wording? Wow. And Jesus is going to respond a little bit different way. It's interesting. The Jewish elders with their arrogance, in stark contrast to the Roman centurion who was humble and he knew his position, not, he knew his position as a Gentile among the Jews that he, that they would perceive him as unworthy, but deeper, he understood his humility before the authority of Christ. I am unworthy in your presence. Stark contrast. Flip back over to Matthew chapter eight. Flip back over to Matthew chapter 8. This centurion believes that Jesus can merely speak a word. In other words, he's acknowledging, Jesus, I have this request of you, but you don't need to come under my roof. I have so much trust in your power and in your authority. All you need to say is it is done. It's amazing what happens here. And in... In Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, Centurion replied to the Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but here's what he says, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. You see that? Just say the word. Faith in the word of Christ was enough. You see that? Faith in the word of Christ was enough. Faith in who he was already. 
Faith in who he was leads Christ into this place of honor. The, the, the centurion understood Jesus' place of, of, of glory. And as the soldier, I mean, as the centurion comes to Christ, he's honoring Christ with his petition by noticing his authority and noticing his power, faith. What is faith? It's that, it's that trust in another. Faith is trust. It's trust in someone else that they will do what they are doing. They will do what they say what they'll do. In other words, even deeper here, the centurion trusted and had faith in who Jesus was. The Roman centurion was not, did not have faith in his own power and his own authority. He had faith in Christ. The centurion expresses faith in Jesus' authority over his own military authority because this Roman centurion, he had the authority to wipe out Capernaum if necessary. If Capernaum was rebellious to the point that the Roman uh, authority said Capernaum needs to be taken out, this Roman centurion had the power that he comes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he says, I am unworthy of your presence in my house, but I trust that if you say it, it'll be done. Simple, yet difficult. How many of us have that level of faith? Jesus, if you say it, I believe it. How many of us expect, expect our entitled Blessings from the Lord because of who we are and what we've done. Like the Jewish elders were trying to tell Jesus, oh, look at what this Roman centurion has done for us. He's a good Gentile. How many of us come to Christ with that failed attitude? Oh, Jesus, I'm a good sinner. You see the irony of those lang- that language? You see, we can see here in this passage, I think even deeper, the understanding of authority as a crucial aspect of faith. It's one thing to to believe in that which is unseen and have faith in that which is outside of our control. But in, in believing and having faith in Christ, we have faith in His authority. Faith puts us at a different level below the one we trust. And we see the authority of Christ and we see our position under that authority. And that is a crucial element in understanding faith as well. Because if we have faith that Jesus is our best friend, then Jesus is our equal. That's a problem. If we have faith that Jesus loves us where we are and he does, does that mean that we're bringing him down to our level and then diminishing his divinity? You see, so a very crucial understanding of faith involves the understanding and the recognition of authority as well. And I think that's what we see here in the Roman centurion's response. He ascribes this honor to the word, not to the word of man, but to the word of God. He was convinced that Jesus was not just an ordinary Jewish peasant. He understood that Jesus was clearly a prophet or or at best a great teacher sent by God, at least the Roman centurion acknowledged that there was something godly in Jesus, something of authority and worth in Jesus. 
And so God's favor was obvious. And this Roman humbled himself to that authority. Wow. You see that? The certainty of God's word gave this Roman confidence in Jesus' ability to heal, gave this Roman confidence in Jesus' ability to honor his request. That is faith. You see that? Now, unless we submit to such authority, unless we submit to the word of God, unless we submit to the word of God as spoken by his son, our sins are certainly forgiven and we're restored to life. If we, if we do this, if our attitude is genuinely humble and our attitude is genuinely repentant and our attitude is genuinely recognizing the authority above us in Christ, that is the only place we can be in order to be forgiven. Now, this does not mean that we're earning our salvation. It does not mean that we are bringing salvation upon us. It's actually a response to God and His authority through His Son, Jesus Christ, calling us and drawing us to this understanding of who we are. It's amazing that when we're reading God's Word and we hear God's Word and we see God's Word genuinely lived out in His faithful, there's something about the genuine faith that we see and we hear in the Word that it is God clearly directing it all. If we get to this point of faithful humility, I would argue that God's been working on us for a while. <laughs> and I would say, even we see this even in the Roman centurion. Imagine being a Roman centurion. If he had gotten to this level of military authority, he'd been around a while. And I think by the, and in God's providential hand, he directs this Roman centurion to serve in an outpost called Capernaum. Just a little place on the lake. No significance. But something happened clearly in his military service that he was influenced by the Jewish culture. He was influenced by the worship of the one true God. And God directed every step of this and even brought him to the point that his servant was sick. And he had heard about Jesus. And he heard that this guy was back home. And he said in his word, heal my servants. You see that? This confidence in the spoken word of the Son, that's confidence that the salvation is already possible outside of our control. Amen? This is Baptist Church. We can say amen. Amen? amen. There you go. Now let's look, look back at Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Look at, Je look at how Jesus, actually beginning in verse 10, you see how Jesus responds to this centurion? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was responding to the faith of this Roman occupier. Not that Jesus was waiting for his faith. Jesus understood what was coming. <laughs> but notice what he says here in verse 10. He marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That, that no one in Israel, Jesus is making a very clear contrast. You sons of God, you children of the kingdom, look at this Gentile. 
I found nobody among you that has the faith that this outsider does. You see that? And then in verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus here, he's, he's making a pretty clear point. He acknowledges in his reply to the centurion that the kingdom of heaven will comprise of many outside of the nation of Israel. Honestly, when you look at what he's saying and what he's acknowledging here, and when you actually look at that, the, all of the rest of the New Testament, and even when you look at the history of the church, and you look at even the, the status of the church today, who is the majority of the congregation? Who is the majority of the kingdom of heaven? It is Gentiles primarily. And so Jesus is acknowledging this, that Gentiles will be welcomed into the kingdom. Gentiles will actually, in a future sense from this text, will eventually be the dominant members, citizens of the kingdom. The Gentiles will be. you. And in, in, in verse 12, he says, "You, the sons of the kingdom, referring to the children of Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's not an insult against the nation of Israel, not at all. Jesus is making a point here that the genuine citizens of the kingdom are the ones who are humble, who are repentant, the ones who come to the table, the ones who come to Christ. They are welcomed into the faith. They are welcomed into the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will welcome many from the east and the west, and they will be at the wedding feast. The wedding feast at the end of time, the wedding feast in heaven as we all gather around our Savior, the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus acknowledges with these words that there's a primary importance to the Gentile nations to recognize that salvation does come through the nation of Israel. He is not casting aside Israel's importance in the history of salvation. Jesus was born Jewish. He was raised in Jewish culture. He, his very ethnicity, he was Jewish as part of God's plan from the very beginning that salvation would come through God's people, the Jews. So Jesus is not saying here that the nation of Israel is cast aside. He's saying that the Gentiles will be welcomed in perhaps even more fervently than the favored ones with the birthrights. You see where we're going here? In no way does Jesus toss aside the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15. Nor does Jesus in any way toss aside the Davidic covenant where he made the promise with David that this Messiah would come through your lineage. He doesn't toss any of that aside. But he does acknowledge here the nations will come to the table, the table set by the Father. Amen? Now, Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This one verse brings great torment to the unbeliever. And I'll be honest with you, I would love to unpack it today, but there's, I, I think it, this one verse actually warrants an entire sermon. And so if it's okay with you, I'm going to wait until next week, and we're going to come back to verse 12. 
And I want to unpack that a little bit. Can we do that? I can't give it justice today. These final verses contain much. <laughs> and especially verse 12. I mean, the reason I want it is because there's a lot of biblical debate and, and speculation concerning the history of salvation. What exactly does weeping and gnashing of teeth mean? We're going to unpack some of that next week if you're, if you're up to it. Y'all up to the challenge? All right. So Matthew's gospel, let's think about this. Matthew's gospel focuses, what's the theme here that we've seen so far? It's the kingdom of heaven. That's going to be a recurring theme throughout the whole gospel. So let's take a look here at what Jesus is saying. Let's look here at verse 13. And the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus honors the request of the centurion. He honors the request of this Gentile pagan. Why? Because we see that the Roman soldier was humble, was repentant, was, was, was broken. He recognized the authority of Christ. We don't necessarily see directly here that this Roman centurion received salvation, but we do clearly see here that Jesus acknowledges his heart and acknowledges his faith. What Jesus is recognizing here is what David in Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So we're seeing Jesus here even responding to the contrite heart, the broken spirit, the humility of this Roman soldier. His faith was genuine and worthy of acknowledging. The point made by Jesus here causes us to see that this centurion, I think, will definitely be at the banquet table of heaven. His eternity will be at the side of his Lord, the one who's all authority to save, the one who has all authority to heal, and the one who has all authority to welcome into the kingdom of heaven whomever he desires to welcome in. I think we see evidence here that I, I think the Roman centurion is going to be at the banquet. I don't see any evidence that he's not. Because Jesus is acknowledging here when he's talking about, uh, uh, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I think he's clearly referring maybe to the Roman centurion as well. You're going to be there, buddy, <laughs> because of your faith. You see that? So here's what I want to ask us as we close out. How do you approach our Lord Jesus Christ? How do you Look upon Jesus. Do you see his authority? Do you acknowledge who he is? Do you acknowledge his divine authority? Do you recognize in that your own unworthiness? I mean, even in our salvation, trust me, I've been walking with the Lord for a while and I'm so grateful that he has allowed me to do so. But man, he shows me how unworthy I am on a regular basis. Thank you, Lord. Appreciate that. Amen. How do we approach our Lord? Even if our Lord has granted you forgiveness, are you still approaching Christ in the same humility as this Roman centurion? I'm not worthy of your presence, Lord. I'll, I'm so grateful for your word. If you'll just speak, 
That's enough for me. That's faith. See that? To God, if you'll just speak, that's enough for me. What a powerful, powerful word. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And dear God, through the gospel of Matthew, your servant Matthew just shows us so clearly the power of Jesus in his ministry, the influence that he had amongst even Gentile pagans who they acknowledged and saw the truth of his nature when even your people, the Jewish leaders, the religious elite, the arrogant ones, they were blinded to the truth. But dear God, we as your people in the church today, we, we are no better. How often are we too complacent and comfortable to where we get so used to your presence, we get so comfortable with the, with the blood of Christ and, and, and Jesus coming alongside us and calling us friends. Lord, we forget where our place is. God, I pray that you would forgive us as we have elevated ourselves higher than we should. We do have a place in your kingdom, and that place in is, is in submission to your Son, He is the authority. We are the servants. We are the ones grateful for the gift of salvation. We are the ones grateful for your grace. We're unworthy. And so, God, I pray this morning as as we do depart today that you would speak into each and every one of our souls, that you would reveal to each and every one of us your love and your grace, but you would also tell each, show each of us where we are in relation to you. We are all one in Christ. We are one united in the blood of Christ, yet our place is under his authority. Forgive us, God, when we've elevated ourselves above you. Remind us, of your love, remind us that we receive it as a gift. Lord, if those who are here do not know you, there there may be some who have not experienced this level of grace and mercy as you save souls. First of all, Father, I trust that you are working in the hearts of those who are hearing. As your Spirit draws and as your Spirit convicts, Lord, I pray that you would love those people here who are listening who do not know you. I pray, God, that your word today would do the work that it is intended to do. I pray that your word would be enough for someone to hear and to respond with humility and grace. To God, we we ask for your word. We ask for your love here. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.